It was the 80s. We were like watching Die Hard and they're like trying to marry off a teenage virgin. Hello and welcome to Talking Sense, part of the Ungag family. I'm your co-host Kat. I'm your co-host Erin. And we're two North American women attempting the impossible. Talking sense about Scottish politics. And today we're going to continue on our discussion about our vision for what we'd like to see in an independent Scotland. So we have welcomed our guest host, Connor Beaton. Hi there. And could you just give us a little introduction for yourself? Sure. So uh, my name is Connor. I live in Dundee, where I work as a journalist, and I'm involved in both the Radical Independence Campaign um, as well as a smaller socialist organization called the Republican Socialist Platform. So basically the perfect guest co-host for <laughs> an episode about not having a monarchy. Hopefully. <laughs> so there's been a lot about the monarchy in the news, but maybe we want to start and talk about our vision for the lack of a monarchy. Erin uh, and I are two of the founding members of our republic, which we do a lot of work with. Uh, Rick, the mm. Radical Independence Campaign, and other groups are kind of more of a um, one-issue group with, with lots of diversity within it. Yeah, so um, as Kat said, we're both founding members of our republic, and um, I guess if we're talking about what our, our visions for, for the future of Scotland are, I mean, uh, as you can probably guess, it's uh, Scotland without a monarchy. For me I think what that would mean would be sort of a very much just a ceremonial president situation like like Ireland has I don't know if you have any thoughts on what you'd like to see the 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 structure of Scotland being without a monarchy um well I think uh, one thing I just want to say off the bat is I think as long as I can remember I've been opposed to the monarchy in principle the idea that you know the royal family has a divine and you know blood related right to rule. So I think that's wrong. Um, but I think it's only in the last couple of years that I've really been involved in a lot of discussions about what republicanism is, what it means to be a republic. And those discussions have definitely shaped my view a lot. And I think the most important part of that is if you look at like the history of republicanism over centuries, um, you know, what we're looking at are struggles for democracy, struggles which were led from below and ones which centered, you know, the total mass of the people. And the thing that I think was so powerful and so threatening about that is that it's not just about kind of tinkering with the edges of how the state works, it's about completely upending it. So what I kind of hope in Scotland and certainly across the islands and the run up to the coronation is that we actually think about how we best channel that kind of original radical spirit of republicanism. So um, if you look at the UK today, such a ridiculously fundamentally undemocratic uh, state. If you look at the fact they're cracking down on the right to protest south of the border, they're cracking down on the right to strike, they're cracking down on devolution, let alone national self-determination. They're giving impunity to British soldiers, to undercover police officers, even to um, paramilitary forces that worked in the north of Ireland. 
I just think there's such a big opportunity and such a big responsibility here to talk about replacing, you know, the UK as a whole with genuinely democratic republics where we have written constitutions that are developed in like a participatory process that actually involve ordinary people um, and fundamentally change the way in which, you know, people are involved in decision making. There should be, uh, you know, things like a right to recall politicians. There should be things like uh, the people we elect can't be overruled by unelected lords. Um, you know, the royals have the right to basically um, vet legislation. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about a petition um, that's been raised around that. And none of these things are remotely democratic. None of them should have any feature in, in Scotland. Um, and I can't think of any better time to talk about all these things than when there's a coronation coming up because the royals is just, you know, the symbol of everything that's wrong in Britain right now. Well, if we had like applause soundtrack backing, <laughs> I'd use it right now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think there's one other thing to highlight there that um, didn't get mentioned. The things that are getting um, cracked down on is, of course, we're talking about democratic legitimacy. They're also cracking down on the right to vote. Um, mm. Basically, the voter ID um, combined with the fact that the kinds of ID they're accepting are largely tilted towards over 60s. Um they're basically trying to disenfranchise young people from voting as well. Yeah, spot on. And I think young people is, what is it, under 50 now? Yeah, young people is, I think, (laughs) under 60 at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you're not retired, you're just a young person now. I will never be an adult, I swear. I know. Well, (laughs) that's a millennial curse, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, And you guys bring up all these good points about the things that we've seen in headlines. One one thing that keeps slipping out of the headlines, it pops up every now and again, but it's harder to nail down, is the, the portion of royal assent where they can vet bills and take yeah. out the parts that they don't want or leave them in and just say, my estates don't count. Yeah. So, you know, I I'm American, so I have very little consciousness of the monarchy. I don't really care. I I, I like to just feel the same distaste for them that I feel for other wealthy people instead of, mm. you know, a level above that. Um, but, you know, Prince King Charles, whatever his name is, Charles Windsor, uh, was always sold as like someone who really cares about the environment, but it's horseshit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. everywhere but where I where I make my money. <sighs> yeah, I'm. it's interesting just like thinking about, you know, you being Americans having like, been like born and raised in a republic um i'm you know i'm canadian and canada is part of the commonwealth um the monarch of you know the commonwealth is is our head of state technically um but it wasn't until i moved here that i really understood like how oppressive monarchy is even in a constitutional Mm -hmm. monarchy because um in canada it really is retained almost just as a figurehead and even that is you know corrosive to um the sense of like equality and it's corrosive to the sense of um uh, what should determine a head of state but we're so far removed from it that like essentially um we kind of forget it's there most of the time so Mm -hmm. in practice um the government systems in canada operate very similarly to here so you have a parliament and we have a senate which is uh appointed um so that that acts like the house of lords um but there's no hereditary seats and there's no there's no bishops or anything it's just the appointed senate mm-hmm. um 
and the Senate is appointed by the, the prime ministers. And then we have um, a governor general um, who is supposed to sort of act in place of uh, the, I guess, king now, who um, that's who does the thing of sending it for royal assent and theoretically has powers to stop parliament being prorogued or whatever, but never acts on them. And is like totally just ceremonial and is appointed by the prime minister. So we just don't actually get a sense of like what monarchy is like here from living there because we also don't we also abolished like all titles so there's no lords of anything and in fact Canadian citizens aren't allowed to hold titles uh to the point that uh famously Conrad Black gave up his Canadian citizenship to become a lord here yeah um so it's I was gonna say no lords are leaping that's so cheesy. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's, it's just really interesting technically coming from a constitutional monarchy and moving to a constitutional monarchy and actually seeing how incredibly different it is here because here it's just like they're just shoved in your face all of the time. They interfere with legislation. They, uh, because all of the titles of nobility uh, and like the aristocracy still exist, you have people just acting like they're better than you by right of birth. Um, you, you have your legislation like overseen by hereditary peers like this is not how most constitutional monarchies work even like mm -hmm. this is weird even for a constitutional monarchy yeah it's kind of sold as like they're just ceremonial here but they're not just ceremonial no. oh, that's other thing. canada does have a written constitution as well so <laughs> yeah connor what what do you think about the aristocracy or like is abolishing the monarchy and living in a republic, does abolishing the aristocracy kind of just come with that? Because it does to me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see how you could do one without the other. Yeah, I, I agree in that. I don't see how you could reasonably do one without the other. But that's not to say I don't think, you know, people who have acquired wealth and privilege in the system won't try and cling on to it for your yeah, life. They'll try. They yeah. Can. Yeah. So, no, I think I think you're right. It does have to be part of it. And that's why I think we have to be sure that we're talking about um republicanism in, the, in a broad and radical sense because if I, I don't i wouldn't be satisfied if they just replaced the monarch with a directly elected president at this point i think that would be you know a tiny change you, you never know I, I, maybe charles could actually run for election and win <laughs> but uh, if that were to happen you know it would defeat the whole point of the conversation which i think is um challenge us and, and britain is such a uniquely i i, I completely agree erin the way you're describing um, the UK, it's bizarre, it's weird. And there's, it's almost like we're all kind of brainwashed into thinking it's not as weird <laughs> as it is. <laughs> um, and I, th I actually really think an important thing in this coronation will be trying to get the views of people who live in, you know, the former empire, the Commonwealth, those countries mm -hmm. to have, I think, not just to have, to have some sort of role in the protests and the discussions that are going to happen among Republicans. I think we need to actually involve their input. Um, although I think at this rate, it's the um, Commonwealth countries that are getting rid of the monarchy much quicker than uh, any any part of these islands. Yeah, hats off to the Caribbean. They're really coming through <laughs> in the last decade. It's been amazing to watch, you know, different royals go and visit and them getting just booed. And, <laughs> um, you know, in America, we're very proud of not having a monarchy, 
where everyone is supposed to be free and equal. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, and, and maybe not everybody actually is free and equal, but there are no titles. I always kind of giggle at titles. I shouldn't because mm-hmm. these people do think they're better and they can control a lot of stuff about our lives, but it's so silly to me. And, you know, the monarchy's not aging well because my granny and like other people in the States who thought, oh, it's just quaint and different and old fashioned, something we don't do now see the Prince Andrew stuff. And mm-hmm. some of them see the Harry and Meghan stuff and they're like, oh, this is really rotten. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of the the pinnacle of the patriarchy. Speaking of that, um, I know it's probably not like super fashionable to be like a bit sympathetic to the royals as people, but like if there's one thing the Harry and Meghan situation has really highlighted as well, is that like there's something really fundamentally wrong about just the institution of the monarchy and the institution of these hereditary titles for the people in them as well. The idea that anyone should be born to a destiny, whether that's to rule or to be ruled, that is offensive. And like also to be chosen for selective inbreeding. Yeah. I mean like but like a dog. But like the stuff has happened with Harry, right? Like, <laughs> like a dog. Or just tending to like a pug like royal that can't breathe properly. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if anybody could be put in that situation and come out okay. Right. No, so there not. is a human rights issue for the people inside, but I'm a little bit less worried about them than everyone else. But yeah, I don't I hate the institution. I don't hate the people. Hmm. Yeah, it's just like, you know, you look at it like William and Kate's kids growing up and just think. Like, yes, okay, they're rich and spoiled and they'll never want for anything in their lives and good for them. But there's just something so horrible about knowing that you are born to a certain kind of predatory celebrity mm-hmm. and that is what your life yeah. has to be. And you have no choice because you just watched your uncle try to leave and look what they did to him. Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, my kids are roughly the ages, you know, I got two and I would never, not, not for all that money, not for all that power, I would never switch places ever. That's just... It would be very interesting to put that question to people and see who would take up that deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't trust anyone that says it would take it. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and also, so there was just recently a poll that came out that 72% of Scots want Andrew's Inverness title stripped, which I think is kind of weak sauce because of course <laughs> they do. Uh, I want all of his titles stripped. I want all of their titles stripped and he should definitely stand trial. I think it gets to the crux of the issue with the monarchy, you know, it being a hereditary thing. It doesn't matter how many people want Andrew to be stripped from his titles. The very nature of a title is it's not placed on him democratically. It's uh, something he gets to impose on the rest of us. And um, it's an interesting thing how widespread the calls have been for Andrew in particular to take a step back from royal duties, because, of course, he's... Um, had a negative impact on the reputation of the royals which is the big biggest concern there not about you know what he's actually done um, mm. but it kind of you can't really pick and choose the it's a package deal you know you get all the royals or you get none of them um because we've so closely embedded the constitution of our state with a single family and so it's kind of like you'd you'd hope some people would be able to make the leap from okay i don't like the fact that prince andrew is in this privileged position ostensibly because his blood is you know what rules the uk divine 
yeah, you know, make make a little, very small leap from there to realizing that actually this isn't a very good way of deciding who should be the head of state of our country, our countries. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think I've heard a lot of people say, well, what if they were like this? Is it the Swedish royal family? I don't know. Norwegian, <laughs> Swedish, one of them. Uh, and I, I would rather not that either. You know, mm. I don't think our tax money should go to supporting wealthy people like that at all we should have diplomats be diplomats maybe yeah like i think there's like one thing in pointing out that like if you compare the uk to any other constitutional monarchy like compare them to like how the swedish royal family are or how the dutch royal family are we're definitely super super weird because of like their royal families being a lot more normal people and having less influence on the state or if you compare to canada where it's really really just ceremonial we are we are very weird for how much influence this on this on the state but like i don't even want a ceremonial royal family i want them gone <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And it comes it comes back to the fact that all of europe you know the uk is one of those very few parts of the continent where you know the state has never collapsed it's never you know either been overthrown or been invaded and we didn't have to you know build all of our democratic institutions from scratch in the 20th century, like a lot of places in Europe did, and they came out naturally with something that um, I think spoke to the, the, the period, which was we need to strengthen the, the human rights infrastructure, the democratic infrastructure. We've just kind of got this thing that's plodded along and been tweaked century after century. And the kind of end result of that actually is that the British constitution, I think you know a lot of people are inclined to call it anachronistic or whatever else, but it is a very resilient thing by how vague it is the fact that you know we don't really set out anywhere where power lies and who exercises it and on whose behalf and how you know it um it helps Mm -hmm. it it survived an awful lot of time by virtue of that it's very much a feature So we've been talking um, a lot about monarchy this episode and about what vision of uh, an independent Scotland that we have uh, without a monarchy. And while it's not within our powers whatsoever to abolish the monarchy, um, there is a petition just now um, in the Scottish Parliament petition system um, calling on the Scottish Parliament to urge the Scottish government to legislate to abolish um, all the adaptations and exemptions to legislation required requested by the monarchy ensure all future communications between the monarchy, Scottish government, and Scottish parliament with representatives of the monarchy are fully transparent and public, publish the detail of all cases where laws have been adapted to the request of the monarchy, and prevent any such alterations to our laws from being implemented in the future. Recently, um, last year, um, there was a Scottish government memo that revealed that draft laws are secretly changed to secure um, royal assent, um, and most recently, um, People were denied the right to know whether Charles III had been exempted from emergency laws to protect tenants um, on his land. And so that is the background to um, to this petition. So this is a really important petition for getting some debate on um, what is within our powers and what isn't to restrict the monarchy without actually being able to abolish it. So if you would like to sign it, you can find it at petitions.parliament.scot slash petitions slash P-E- 1998 and yeah i'd encourage you all to sign it it has done uh, remarkably well so far it has 7,000 signatures 7,203 signatures which is like an unbelievably high number for a scottish parliament petition 
You'll be able to find a link in the show notes. So we talked a bit about like how we would want an independent Scotland to be structured without a monarchy. And there's actually quite a lot about the way Scotland is structured that I like. Um, We're a small we're a small country, so a unicameral legislature makes sense. Mm. I like that we are elected, that that's elected on um, proportional representation. Um, mm. Unlike many countries that sort of sprung forth from Westminster, it means we have a, a fairly representative mm. parliament. Um, I wouldn't want to see a strong executive. I wouldn't want to become like a presidential mm. republic. I mean, this is probably just because I'm biased by being from Canada, where we use a Westminster system and then pretend like the monarchy doesn't exist. But um, instead of a president, the executive is represented by a fairly ceremonial post, which is the governor general. And they're appointed by the current sitting prime minister, but for a term that is a different length than the prime minister's so that the governor general carries forward. So a prime minister usually starts with someone else's governor general. So it's not entirely just the prime minister appoints them again, but it's basically Mm -hmm. an entirely ceremonial post. They do theoretically have powers, but they don't use them. And I would just not imbue them with those powers because mm-hmm. i think the like a unicameral proportionally represented the proportional representation elected uh, legislature works quite well for a country the size of scotland yeah um i think estonia has a unicameral parliament uh i would have to look up more specifics on it but i know that it it can be done and it com- can be done well and proportional representation systems are what's necessary uh i'd like to get rid of the AMS system for a purely proportional representation system, personally. Like um, open national list or something. Yeah. 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 Like Pierre de Haunt or Jefferson system, if you're American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never heard it called that before. It is. Um, the other system is the Hamilton system. That is oh, almost really? exactly like it. But the, <laughs> the remaining one gets put to the opposite, depending on which system, which is very fitting for those two men. Yes. <laughs> It's definitely a bit of history that I should be uncovering as part of the, you know, the long history of republicanism. I only just started, uh, I just read Common Sense for the first time uh, by Thomas Paine, so I'm definitely starting to uncover some of that <laughs> tradition. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I could talk about American revolutionary stuff. <laughs> I mean, I got taught that. You get taught that, like you get brought up instead of like whatever they teach here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say something that was insulting. I didn't. <laughs> they, I'm sure they do wonderful teachings here, but we ter- we learn that the British aren't to be trusted. <laughs> and yeah, this is why. Teach us a lesson or two. Yeah, not everybody moves here and realizes like, oh God, it hasn't changed. Like, what? <laughs> it's funny because we learn the British aren't to be trusted too, but that's because I went to school in Eastern Ontario where like most people are Francophone. So that is just like learn about how bad the Modi Anglais are and what they did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, full disclosure, Wisconsin was like French fur trepper countries before it was, it was never really British, you know, mm-hmm. like Germans moved in. I mean, of course, it's Native American country and then stolen mm-hmm. by different groups of white people over a long amount of time. But yeah, um, but I don't have a specific system in mind. I just want it to be a representative democracy that does a better job of representing Scotland. I think a really important thing for me is if we decide to be an independent country, we're going to have to have a process of writing a constitution. 
Um, that process, I think, has to be as open as dem and democratic as possible. Um, firstly, just because I think that's the right thing to do. I don't think that, you know, whoever runs the Scottish government at the time necessarily has a mandate to write the entire constitution. That has to be something broader and has to be mm -hmm. dealt with kind of apart from just the question of should Scotland become independent. And to the SNP's credit, they've always said that they would favour some sort of process. They've been kind of light on the detail so far, maybe understandably given how many other challenges we have to face with. But we need to have that process. And one of the great things about that, I think, is it would bring together um, you know, both sides of the constitutional debate. So um, it's not just people who support independence who should be writing an independent Scotland's constitution. It should be absolutely everyone in Scotland, including unionists. Um, and very much some of the stuff that I would like to see come out of that, I think it's already been touched on. I want to see um, a single unicameral parliament. I want to see it proportionally elected. I'd love to see a lot more power being pushed downwards to um, a local level. And that I think has to come with uh, a transformation in how local government is funded. I think very often you see kind of interesting experiments with local democracy that just fall flat on their face because the resources aren't there. There was one uh, a good few years ago in Dundee, they did a kind of a participatory budgeting exercise where the idea was that local people in all the different wards would get to discuss and come up with local projects and vote for which ones of those got taken forward. And it was meant to be democratizing um, local budgeting and I think it fell flat on its face because it was happening in the context of budget cuts so kind of mm -hmm. the ideas that were getting pitched as using this pot of money were like a lot of them were like repairs and things that should have been done anyway and probably would have been done anyway um, and I didn't really kind of like how actually limiting that felt as a, as a democratic process when it was kind of choosing what was going to get cut and what wasn't rather than you know what new things are we going to you know grow um, and so, yeah, I think that, again, has to be part of the discussion about an independent Scotland and how we structure it. It's, it's all about how do we make uh, the exercise of political power as democratic, as low to the bottom as possible. Um, and of course, a monarchy fits nowhere in there. Um, uh, titles mm. fit nowhere in there. Maybe there could be some kind of civic honour system, but I don't know that I necessarily see the point in that either. Mm? Get like a unicorn medal. We're doing a good job. Oh yeah, yeah. The the order of the unicorn. Good job. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> maybe it'd be like you get a medal like every get... year, and you have to pass it on to the next person the next year. You don't get to keep it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I know presidential medal of freedoms. Not to relate everything to America, but that's what mm. I know. So sorry. Um, but like, you don't say like, "Oh, hello, I'm presidential medal of freedom person." This <laughs> it's just something that you have, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's that's like an that. honor, but not everyone cares about. Mm -hmm. It's like that in Canada as well. There's Order of Canada that every province has, like, you know, Order of Ontario, Order of Alberta, whatever. And it is just like, oh, like, yeah, if you've done some, like, huge amount of volunteering or whatever, like, congrats. Here's you've a got the Order of Ontario now. But, like, yeah, it doesn't, you don't, I don't think you get postnomials for it or anything. Like, when I hear Order of, I think of Moose Lodges for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Order it's, of the, it's deeply silly like, to me. Yeah. Yeah. Fraternal elk or whatever. <laughs> this is how irreverent we are about all that kind of stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah. Here's our certificate. Like, keep it there. Maybe your grandkids <laughs> care. You know, you met you mentioned Thomas Paine, but um John Rawls is one of my favorites because mm. you know it's justice as fairness that you give equal rights, basic liberties, uh, but you have to facilitate the least advantage before you get to the most advantage and i hope that our future constitutional conventions for an independent scotland will will incorporate that a lot so 
I'm a big yeah. fan. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's see. What are we on to next? I have stopped the inbreeding written down on my paper. <laughs> but I think I I think I think to be fair, I think they have stopped doing that. <laughs> I mean, Diana, didn't they say something about Diana joined the royal lines from way, way back? Oh, that's like, true. That's but it was not like good. It was pretty far moved. The most disgusting thing about what happened with Diana is apparently the reason they like shoved her at Charles was because like he was already like with Camilla at that point, but Camilla wasn't a virgin. Uh-huh. It's so disgusting. They were obsessed. They had to marry a virgin. So thirty-something year old married a teenager. Yeah, that's less bad apparently than marrying not a virgin. Like oh, sure. it was the eighties. It's not like this happened in like nineteen forty or something, right? It was the eighties. We were like watching Die Hard, and they're like trying to marry off a teenage virgin. I I can't. I'm sorry, I just. What year did Diana and Charles get married? It was like about 84? Yeah, I think something like that. Like, oh, it's just around my birthday. Yeah, it was gross. 81. Like, oh, there you go. The whole thing is disgusting. And it's like the monarchy is such a perfect symbol of so many things like a symbol of the lack of democracy in britain but it's also a symbol of patriarchy it's a symbol of you know he's the defender of the faith so it's all the kind of protestant supremacy and all Mm. the values that go with that and it's just all wrapped up in the whole aristocrat system you know like another thing that i was just reminded of the other day is um the gender recognition act 2004 specifically says you know um the gender you acquire it's not going to have any impact on the the inheritance of peerages and titles. Can I mm. can I talk to you about that for a little bit? I know Absolutely. I talk about I okay, so I talk about this book every time I get a chance. So Kat is going to be completely bored <laughs> of this because I've done this about 10 times on this podcast now. It's been but a while. There it's is the most incredible book and you absolutely have to read it if you are interested in uh progressive politics, trans rights and the monarchy and that is uh The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes uh by Zoe Playden. Um, I'll just do a quick plug uh, from the Out for Independence YouTube channel has a uh, video of Zoe Playton talking about this book. So basically, this was the case that stopped trans people being able to change their birth certificates until the Gender Recognition Act 2004. And it was in like the 60s. So Ewan Forbes was a Scottish nobleman uh, who was a trans man. Um, and basically it was his cousin challenging his right to inherit that led to this case that was totally hidden and totally covered up because of what a threat it was to the whole concept of like the inheritance of peerages um um so even though basically no one got to know about this case because they covered it up because it was about a fairly high-ranking aristocratic family it is basically what ended people being able to easily amend their birth certificates Mm. so like part of why this is turf island might very well be because of trying to like maintain this like privilege because everything's about maintaining wealth here isn't it yeah i have a title i haven't read the book but i will put it on my list i have heard of the case and it is yeah as you say it's just such a perfect example of how it turns out if you have a whole political system centered on blood and inheritance and all this stuff surprise that it leads to all kinds of reactionary um, I wouldn't even say side effects, symptoms maybe. 
Well, and it's also something that has been exported around the world, right? Um, mm. I, I think maybe I've mentioned this before, but um, I wrote some papers on different ways to like reserve seats in different voting systems worldwide to kind of, you know, try and get more proportional representation um, of minority groups and women. And the countries that have the hardest times are former British colonies because the like sexism that was and the white supremacy was so strong that the hangover from it, these countries aren't doing as well as former colonies of other countries, other European countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the former colonies of the UK in Africa versus former colonies of Portugal on who has decriminalized mm-hmm. homosexuality, all of Portugal's former colonies have mm-hmm. lots of former British ones haven't. Yeah, for example. And, and there's such a still a, a very tight, it's shrinking now, but there's still a tight relationship between the British judiciary and uh, its former colonies, Commonwealth countries. You know, there's still a lot of um, former colonies whose highest court of appeal is the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council based in London in the same building as the UK Supreme Court. Um, there's been all kinds of controversies about um, where British judges have uh taking posts but and and if you look before the supreme court was created it was the house of lords that functioned as our highest court and um, by extension the highest court for all kinds of colonies so like there's such a long complicity of the british state in all of the you know as you say like homophobic laws that it imposed on colonies and then you know allowed to remain there during decolonization and then continue to have this kind of relationship with and building up this big jurisprudence of how to enforce it. Um, And I think that gets overlooked a lot. Well, moving on, if you, like us, want to see the end of a monarchy, and whether or not you want Scotland to be independent, uh, we have some events coming up. Our Republic and Rick and a a lot of other uh, groups are planning events leading up to and around the coronation. Uh, Maybe, Connor, do you want to... Talk to us a little bit more about that since you're involved in lots of the groups doing the planning. Sure. So the Radical Independence Campaign, I think we're very much looking forward to the big demonstration in Calton Hill that I'm sure you'll tell us about how the Republic has organised. So a lot of our work in the next few months is going to be helping to build towards that. We're having a working group meeting on the Wednesday, the 1st of February in the evening, and that'll be online. And that's open to anyone who you know is sympathising with Rick and uh, wants to be part of that campaign. Um, we want to make very forcefully the arguments that an independent Scotland should be a republic, uh, that republicanism is about um, totally redefining the state in a more democratic way. Um, and one thing that we've been really keen to do and have been trying to do in a number of ways, for example, around the COP26 summit that took place in Glasgow, is trying to uh, build international support and make international links So we have been making links already with independence groups in Wales. Um, There's a really big campaign, I I think some people have already seen it, in Wales against a separate investiture of the Prince of Wales. Um, They Mm. see this as kind of a humiliating uh, event in the context of Welsh history and its relationship with England. Um, And there's been some really big popular support about that. We absolutely want to build links between radical independence supporters in Scotland with those in, in Wales. Um, likewise in Ireland, which has got an incredibly complicated colonial relationship with Britain. Um, we think this is the time that we can actually make 
a big concerted push across these islands um, for a more democratic alternative to the UK state. So um, I'm actually going to be in Belfast and in Derry uh, this weekend with some other Brexit supporters, and we're going to be speaking to people there. Um, and we're going to be carry on, carrying on those kinds of initiatives to try and build you know, the widest possible show of uh, opposition to, to the monarchy and everything it represents. I, I think what you said, Connor, about building international support is really important because during the funeral, uh, it wasn't during the funeral, it was when they were like announcing the new king or whatever, that the signs, the the booze, I, I feel like it was picked up by the international community. Mm. The American press, you know, aired it a lot more than it was brought to light here. And it was presented with a lot different filter, which I thought was very useful to, to those of us who went to see the end of the monarchy. Mm. Um, mm, I um, wasn't able to attend these because I am on a visa and the way that they were arresting people. Um, So I will be doing some of the planning and staying away from any police. (laughs) I think we do need to talk about this actually Mm -hmm. about um, there's like a few, there's a few things we need to talk about there. One was um, as as you were saying, um, the way the international media versus the way the domestic media covered the um, sort of small protests and sort of individual acts of protest at the sort of announcement of, of the new monarch. Um, people were, you know, the, the domestic media was was losing their minds with this, like, how disrespectful it was, and the Queen just died, and, like, well, when else are you going to protest a new monarch than when a new monarch's being announced? It's not like they were protesting the funeral. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, and as, as you say, the, the threat to us as, um, as immigrants is that, like, this is an area where we feel like we don't really have any political rights, because we both get told, oh, you don't understand because you're foreign, and the police overreact to anything to do with the monarchy even again if it's things like the announcement of the new monarch where it's just some guy making the announcement it's not like there's Mm -hmm. any state figures actually there to be in danger and yet the police are acting like they're taking a bullet for the president like (laughs) arresting people for holding up blank pieces of paper arresting for someone for holding eggs in the vicinity of a windsor or protecting people who are, you know, actually assaulting Republicans, as we saw in, I think it was in Edinburgh. Um, ah, right. Yes, know, I do think that they did end up, I, I read that the police were looking into arresting that guy. I'm sure that they dealt with it with justice. They, they did arrest and charge a couple of people. I think I'm waiting to hear what the actual outcome of that process is. But it was notable that, you know, two guys started attacking someone because... That person was heckling Prince Andrew of all people to defend. Um, mm. and the, but the police stepped in and arrested the heckler, not the two guys. They were arrested way later after the kind of public response and the video had been shared and circulated. So it shows where the first instinct is. Yeah, you're right. I mean, social media, I guess, is okay for some things, mm. like arresting yeah. that guy. There is a line that is kind of going around in sort of like independency Republican circles that I don't think is actually technically correct, um, which is that um, the problem with the GRR bill getting blocked is that it had to go for royal assent. Um, mm. That isn't really the problem. Monarchy isn't really the problem there. For once, it isn't actually the monarchy that's the problem. Um, I mean, it's yeah. a problem with every bill. But right. yeah, it's a problem with every bill, but like the problem isn't that it has to go for royal assent. The problem is that it has to go for the approval of an executive that isn't based in Scotland. So if the UK suddenly became a republic, legislation in general in 
systems in any system has, you know, the legislature votes on it mm. and the executive signs it off. So like in the US, you know, the the House of Representatives and the Senate vote for something and then the president signs it, right? So even if we were a republic, the problem would be it would have to go for assent to the president of like the UK, which would be based outside Britannia. Scotland. They could block that too. <laughs> so the problem really isn't actually the monarchy here. The problem is that the executive resides outside Scotland. I mean, yeah. I think it also is a problem that if royal assent is withheld, there is no democratic workaround, right? Because if if a US president vetoes a bill, it can be passed by two thirds majority in mm. Congress. It can still be put into law if that is the will of the people. Yeah. Well, the will of <laughs> the elected members of Congress, but <laughs> yeah, no, no form of democracy is perfect. Yeah. But yeah. this is what we have here right now is extremely imperfect and we can do better. Yeah. Well, this yeah. thing is the Scotland. To be clear, the GRR bill did pass by more than a two thirds majority. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it would have been a veto proof majority in, in that kind of system. Yeah. The, the Scotland Act um, 1998 is based, it's effectively the closest thing we have to a, a Scottish constitution at the minute is effectively the document that much in the way a constitution of an independent Scotland would, it sets out what are the actual rights and responsibilities of the Scottish government, the Scottish parliament, etc. The problem is that we didn't actually write it. Um, and that is, it was, it was kind of crafted in Westminster, an institution that has got very little to do with democracy as far as I'm concerned. Um, it was written in such a way as to kind of limit what the government could do. I mean, it wasn't even a government. It was a Scottish executive at its founding. It was written very much in the way of we've got to put some caveats in here. There was a lot of unease with even the idea of devolution because, I mean, it's, I think it's hard for me as a, you know, a 27-year-old but never lived in Scotland um, without a parliament to kind of come to grips with how, what a massive uh, upset to the, Scot- to the British constitutional norm it is to even have devolved parliaments um, and not just have you know Westminster as a single dominant uh, parliament. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Scotland Act, the, the problem is, you know, of course there would be a, a provision in an independent Scotland's constitution as to some, you know, process by which a bill might be frustrated um, but that would be a process that we agreed, you know, democratically that we put in a document that everyone can see and understand and even change if they want to, mm-hmm. instead of this thing where it's like a section of the Scotland Act that none of us, like the vast majority of people in this country didn't even know was there um, until it was used for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting is because of a quirk of the way that Canada's current constitutional setup came to be we actually don't really have a way for a bill to be frustrated because theoretically Mm. the governor general has that power but because she is considered to just be a figurehead like um the idea that it would ever 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 be used and not in the way that like the idea that section 35 would ever be used was unbelievable because that process is controlled by here is controlled by elected people with agendas whereas like the governor general is like usually something like a retired astronaut or something like like someone who just doesn't have that much of an agenda um so we actually technically don't have a way for bills to be frustrated which is actually a little bit worrisome because sometimes we get these really wild governments and there's just nothing you can do about it um but um i was i was thinking about what you said about the scotland act being essentially um our constitution at the moment i know like i'm just doing comparisons to canada but i just kind of keep doing that because Mm. that is sort of another situation where we have a sort of arm's length 
relationship with the monarchy is um, until 1982, Canada was in a very similar position in that our only constitution was basically the British North America Act from like 1860 something. Um, and that was, again, a piece of legislation that wasn't really created like by us. That was like Britain giving us a structure to go go play with uh mm. we didn't actually get our own constitution until 1982 so um it's sort of interesting that's another like recent within sort of some not my lifetime but some of our lifetimes um constitution rating process that happened in a, in a place that was previously kind of governed just by legislation kind of created by the uk mm. i'd be interested to know how the canadian uh structure and the governor general's role relates to you know some of the other colonies because one of the um things that I was coming back to, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it, is the case of Australia in the 1970s, where in 1975, oh, yeah. there was a major political crisis and the Labour government, um, led by Gough Whitlam, was basically removed from office by the Governor-General, uh, sparking like this huge constitutional crisis. And it's, there was a great deal of debate about it for many years about, you know, was this legitimate and how was this decision reached? And in 2020, there was there's a historian whose name is Jenny Hawking, who managed to get the correspondence between basically the office of the governor general of australia and buckingham palace about these events and um i think that it's, it's worth reading about them because they were very, the headlines in britain immediately after that were like well buckingham palace cleared of any kind of involvement um in this whole saga but um jenny hawking herself actually says that uh, as a work of history historical analysis that's just a nonsense she's completely dismissed that argument um, because the, the letters have the palace repeatedly reassuring the governor general of Australia, yes, you do have the power to get rid of the government and almost mm. kind of encouraged him to make use of this. Um, and so you have this kind of, it's a very Australian political crisis. I don't think you would suggest that, you know, Britain was meddling, um, but it was the uh, infrastructure of the British state and the way it had been set up with this former colony that basically provided the tools um for that crisis to be resolved. And I think that's the important thing for any discussions about like what are the uh, what are the powers of the monarchy is probably in an average day, average year, you would never see them being used because they would never have to be used. The question is, how can these things be used in a time of crisis? And the really interesting recent British example of that would be um, the prorogation of parliament. When Boris Johnson tried to prorogue parliament um, during the Brexit mm -hmm. whole debacle, uh, effectively relying on the power of the Crown. And the only reason that that didn't go ahead in the end was because the Supreme Court intervened on a very technical basis. And I think if we've learned anything in Scotland recently, it's we can't really rely on the Supreme Court to always side with democracy. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so um, what's interesting is we had a prorogation crisis in Canada in the 2000s. Um, mm. And uh, again, our parliament is just basically straight up Westminster system. Uh, we just replaced the Lords with an appointed Senate, but that's it. Like it is straight up Westminster system. Um, and what was interesting is you had a very unpopular prime minister who was about to lose power uh, because uh, a bunch of the smaller progressive parties had decided to form a coalition, which coalitions do not happen in Canadian politics. They're just like allergic to them, um, even though they are, it is the exact same system as, as, as Westminster. And that's totally a thing that can happen. It just doesn't, because people are allergic to them. And they'd finally decided that this government was so bad and so unpopular, they were going to form a coalition. And the prime minister uh, decided to prorogue parliament, which is something that is within the power of the prime minister to do. And then it's just um, up to 
the governor general, much like it's up to the crown here to agree or not. And what you did end up with was people who would normally be um, anti-monarchist would normally not like the idea of an active governor general, which we basically never had an active governor general, mm. uh, begging the governor general to not allow him to prorogue parliament. And she was, you know, a very progressive person herself. Um, so everyone was shocked when she agreed to the prorogation. But I think it was ultimately the right decision because mm. she was upholding the principle that the governor general is just a figurehead and doesn't defy the will of the prime minister. Mm. Yeah, which is like such a strong contrast to the Australian experience where the Prime Minister, you know, can persuade the Governor General to do what he wanted. Uh, you know, that's that's like, <laughs> yeah. again, it's, it's the Constitution working how it's meant to. Um, and what we really have to worry about is how do we prevent it working in other ways? Oh, I, say, I just want to be clear. It's not like I'm endorsing um, the Canadian model, because as, as you rightly pointed out, Connor, um, the issue is when powers that theoretically exist what we say are ceremonial actually do get used um and while that's not really happened in canada of course it did happen in australia so you want to be really careful if you're creating a sort of ceremonial executive just to have you know a person who's there to hold together the legal fiction of having a a sign off that isn't just the exact uh, legislative branch that you do want to make sure that they don't actually have the ability to mess anything up unless you know it's absolutely necessary to have some sort of safeguard mm -hmm. Yeah, because grifter is going to grift. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they will but find a way. The, the thing about all the discussions we're having about the executive as well is, and you know, in the UK context, we're talking about the prime minister and their cabinet. Um, we've been through so many prime ministers in the last few years, which has had almost no recourse to, um, you know, the general public and how they vote. And that's not to say that I'm proposing that, like people have said, a, a, an executive presidency or anything like that. Um, but it really goes to, to the crux of like what is the legitimacy of the executive um, in a situation where it's not really got a, a person or a program that anyone's endorsed in any meaningful way. Um, I think in, in independent Scotland, we really need to have a constitution that more clearly states, you know, you know what, what is the right to, of someone to say, you know, maybe I elected this politician three years ago, but they've done something that's betrayed why we voted for him so badly that we actually want to replace him. Can we remove him? Um, that's something other countries have experimented with. I think it was actually one of the, was it not one of the demands of the Chartists or did they want annual elections or, um, but anyway, it should, it shouldn't be that, you know, a, a bunch of, a few hundred Tories in Westminster on a whim can decide who's going to wield that massive amount of power. Mm -hmm. I do have some sort of antsy feelings about, um, recalls just because we've seen those um in america we've seen those weaponized against people um if they don't enact populist policies mm -hmm. um and i do have some concerns about that everything's imperfect we have to find a system that <laughs> is mm -hmm. the hardest to game and the hardest to grift which mm -hmm. is actually there's another dimension to that which is i think you can have the actual institutions can be perfectly democratic but you also need to have a democratic culture and you need to have a democratic media i think obviously i'm sure everyone can see in britain how much influence uh, a small handful of newspaper editors have on the political discourse here and decision making mm -hmm. and the you know even how close and chummy you have all the senior uh, british political correspondents with um, various figures in westminster some of them become figures in westminster or were figures in westminster and that is actually something that I think 
is a concern for a Scottish democracy and independence. I think the media that we have in Scotland is completely inadequate for the job that it has. Um, and I'm not just saying that in the context of, you know, the media here is overwhelmingly anti-independence. It doesn't actually function really like a national media. You don't have the level of scrutiny and the level mm -hmm. of um, public discussion that you even have. Like, I think it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, Scotland's really small. It can't really sustain a media like that. But if you look at, um, in Ireland, for example, uh, they have a very, um, I don't want to say good media, because actually I think they have uh, quite a right-wing media. But Robust? Yes, that, that is a better word, I think. They have actual journalists who report on what's happening, and that has a real impact here. Whereas I can't think of the last time it actually mattered what was in the pages of the Herald or the Scotsman. Because... Um, <laughs> It would There's help nothing... if they have a bunch of dinosaurs writing for them. Yeah, you know, you've got you've got columnists who are completely out of touch and the most awful uh, people to read. You know, you don't know why they'd want to. And then the actual reporting operations can barely do anything beyond um, writing up a story that's landed literally in their lap. And you yeah. get these few little bits of investigative work, like the the, the ferret, absolutely brilliant um, mm -hmm. project, but. You, you don't really feel like you have all of the media institutions for a functioning, healthy democracy. And that is actually something that should be part of the discussions um, around Scottish independence as well, I think. Yeah, no offence to um, white men or to journalists, <laughs> Connor. I don't know if you remember, there was a picture of maybe during the local elections of Nicola Sturgeon being interviewed by this big scrum of reporters and they're all white guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody on that beat, right? We can't demand that they have some kind of gender balance, but it's not there. Yep. There's no there's no goal or aim for it to be there. Yeah, I mean, there just there needs to be something done about the way that media has become sort of restricted to people from either certain backgrounds or mm -hmm. people who got into it 30 years ago, 40 years ago and aren't letting go. Yep. Mm -hmm. A lot of things in America are crap, but NPR is really good. And, and PBS is pretty good on how they do news. It's yeah, a lot of things in pretty... Canada are crap, but the CBC is so much better than the oh BBC. yeah, the CBC, the CBC is, is excellent. Oh, so gave, good. Gave us the Red Green Show. Oh yeah, gave us uh, Shit's Creek. <laughs> yeah, and uh, <laughs> really, well... yeah, yeah. Um, oh, what was the show that was called with Rick Moranis and is it, and your friends the kids? Oh, no, it was the show that got them all started. No, oh. it was the sketch comedy show. Yeah, Catherine O'Hara uh, and... Oh, crap. Kids in the Hall? What, is that it? What, Tyler? Second City TV. Se Second City, oh, SCTV. Second City TV. That's Sorry, I was thinking was. about Kids in the Hall, but that was the other group of Canadian uh, comedians. That came much later, yes. Yeah. Sorry, Connor. Sometimes... <laughs> Aaron and I feel like we grew up next door to each other because some yeah, things make sense. Yeah, because Wisconsin is almost Canada. That's nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and also, thank you for uh, doing this recording with us and and having patience with us coming from different countries. And <laughs> I know why do I have, just to have patience? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, you've had to maybe explain more of the the, the nitty gritty nuts and bolts. I don't know. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes I ask questions that from someone who grew up here seems silly. Um, but I find that it's it's useful to keep asking these questions because sometimes mm -hmm. it's something no, nobody ever thought of. Yeah. 
That's what I tell myself anyways. <laughs> no, I've, I've enjoyed the questions. I also, I was born in Germany, so I, I'm also an adopted Scot in a way. Amazing. What part cool. of Germany? Uh, Hamburg. Oh, nice. My family is very German still culturally because yeah. that's Wisconsin for a lot of it. I, I have cousins in Texas who still are, who have been there for like a few generations and are still have like a German language family newsletter and uh, they go to the, there's some German cultural centers there. It's incredible how much of that is still there. Yeah. Well, because it used to be where there was a famine or war and you wanted to immigrate, your whole family could come <laughs> mm-hmm. if you were white. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, uh, boy. you could still keep up those traditions. <laughs> so I ask this every time that we do a, a podcast with a guest on it, because I think it's like a good way of uh, making sure that there isn't some topic that went unmentioned. So Connor, is there anything mm-hmm. that you wish we've asked you? Ooh. <laughs> uh, that's a good question I don't know is there anything I wish you'd asked me about the monarchy or, about or anything, anything that you would have wanted to get out on the show that we might not have asked you I'm really racking my brain I don't know if it's because it's <laughs> late on a Monday night that I can't think of anything you know if I'm going to mention anything the one thing I'd maybe give a, a brief mention to is we're talking about the coronation and wanting to have um, people across these islands and across the commonwealth protesting in support of that um one of the best things i've seen happen in the last couple of weeks after the section 35 um was availed of in the case of the gender recognition reform bill has been that there wasn't just protests in scotland about it but there were protests uh, in london across england there was a protest in cardiff there was a protest in dublin and i was really pleased to see that because um there's obviously sections of the independence movement that are really hostile to trans people and trans rights and now by sheer chance we've kind of worked in a way where uh queer people across these islands are actually the backbone of um you know public displays of support for scottish democracy and against the tory uh rolling back on um trans rights so personally i think uh we should keep that going uh towards the coronation i would like to see um you know, let's see big uh, mobilizations of queer people against the, the monarchy across these islands as well. Yeah, would love to see that. Yeah, I can get on board with that. Amazing. <laughs> thank you both so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed um, talking no about all of this oh, stuff. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.